In this mini-series, we have the pleasure of conversing with Dr. Stuart Casey Maslin on the topic of international disarmament law. He is joined by Ms. Dominica de Beaufort, Senior Policy Officer with the Security and Law Program at the GCSP, where she is also the course director of the International Disarmament Law Executive Course and Virtual Learning Journey. Stuart, welcome to the GCSP today and thank you for taking part in our mini-series on international disarmament law. Since the GCSP is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year, I thought it would be interesting to mention that the history of the GCSP is actually closely linked to the topic of disarmament. It was after the Geneva summit of 1985 between Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev that the Swiss Confederation took the initiative to design a nine-month executive training program to strengthen national expertise in the fields of disarmament and international security. So a very important topic back then, and it still is. So really interesting to, to, to exchange on, on recent developments and on the way ahead. So before we delve into the realm of international disarmament law, I would suggest to stop a moment and speak about international law as such. So Stuart, a brief reminder to all non-lawyers listening to us, what is international law and what are the sources of international law? So international law is the body of law that governs in particular, but not only, the conduct of states, how states behave both with respect to each other and with respect to what they do on their own territory. Um, just like uh, domestic law, there are different branches of uh, international law and there are also different types. There's international uh, civil law, which deals with uh, the behavior, for example, with respect to human rights. But there's also international criminal law, which means that individuals, in particular, uh, when they act on behalf of a state, can commit international crimes and can be held accountable for those uh, crimes. In terms of the sources, these are set out uh, in the Statute of the International Court of Justice. That's a treaty that was adopted in 1945, along with the United Nations Charter. And Article 38 sets out in some detail what both the primary and subsidiary uh, sources of international law are. The most important primary sources are treaties, binding legal agreements between uh, states, and customary law. That's a practice of states that has become generally accepted as a legal obligation. In terms of subsidiary sources, you have, of course, case law from courts, whether that be domestic or international uh, courts, but also the writing of the leading publicists, the leading international lawyers. So it will be interesting to see afterwards what sources of international law are the most important to disarmament. But before we do that, I'd like to take a short look back at history, because disarmament and arms control are by far not new phenomena. So what would you say was the first international instrument to regulate the arms trade? So probably the first uh, treaty uh, that regulated part of the arms trade uh, was actually a treaty about slavery, not a, uh, primarily a treaty about uh, weapons. The 1890 Brussels Agreement uh, restricted and prohibited the importation of firearms into Africa. The aim being to slow down what was still quite a vigorous uh, uh, trade in uh, slaves. Um, it wasn't the 
uh, only instrument uh, of that time that regulated different aspects of, of weapons. For example, the use of weaponry uh, was regulated first in the 1899 Hague Peace Conference and then in the 1907 uh, conference. But both of these conferences failed to agree to disarmament measures, to measures to reduce armaments. And then the League of Nations was established in 1919. And interestingly, a global conference on disarmament was held under its auspices in Geneva in 1932. And the goal was to discuss universally reducing and limiting all types of weapons. But, well, as we know, unfortunately, agreement on the draft convention was, was never reached. And another agreement from the period between the two world wars is the Kellogg-Briand Pact that was signed in Paris in 1928 by Germany, France and the U.S., did this treaty contain any clear obligations under international law? It did. Uh, just to mention on the League of Nations, there were disarmament obligations, but they were primarily imposed on Germany. Germany was held responsible uh, for the uh, conduct of the, uh, the existence and the conduct of the First World War. And uh, there were very significant, far-reaching uh, disarmament obligations imposed on it as a result of its defeat. The Kellogg-Briand uh, Pact uh, was a landmark in, in international law, but in a slightly different area, in an area called jus ad bellum. That's actually uh, the body of law that governs the use between states of force. And it certainly did contain uh, clear obligations. The, obliga the primary obligation was that the renunciation of warfare as a means of national policy. Um, and the fact uh, that it became accepted as customary law quite quickly was then used as the basis for prosecution of uh, the Nazis in the Nuremberg uh, Tribunal that followed the end of the Second World War, including a bit of controversy about mm -hmm. whether that was actually a criminal offence or just uh, a, a, an offence by states. And after the Second World War, so in 1945, the UN Charter was adopted. And states have really concluded numerous international disarmament treaties since then, both bilaterally and multilaterally. So we can think of, for instance, the Antarctic Treaty of 1959 during the Cold War, or then in 1968, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, or in Europe, uh, the Treaty on Conventional Armed Forces in Europe of 1980. So all these treaties today, would you say that they fall under disarmament or would maybe the right heading be arms control and non-proliferation? So as you've rightly uh, indicated, there is a dispute amongst lawyers, amongst states as to how to classify certain agreements. For example, the United States calls the Antarctic a treaty a non-armament uh, treaty. Others suggest that it's a rule Uh, that it's a treaty that sets down rules of jus ad bellum because you cannot station weapons of mass destruction in the Antarctic. Um, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, as the name suggests, is about restricting the proliferation of uh, nuclear weapons. And then the Treaty on Conventional uh, Armed Forces was about controlling the balance of armed forces between, uh, at the time, uh, the end of the Soviet bloc and uh, NATO and the, the Western alliance. Where you, where you describe those different treaties is very much a matter of debate. Some people use the term disarmament as a, an umbrella term. More people, I think, today would use the term arms control as an umbrella term for all these different agreements. So there is no universally accepted definition of disarmament, right? No, that's correct. Um, we'll talk about uh, the... Uh, the features of, of a disarmament uh, treaty, at least in, in our view, but there is no 
consensus opinion on whether disarmament is a global umbrella term or whether it refers more specifically to treaties that include the destruction of stockpiles. So bearing this in mind, would you say that today disarmament law constitutes an independent and specialized branch of international law? It, it certainly is. It, it's a body of law that is primarily focused on treaty law, but there are certain accepted customary uh, obligations, and those are specific uh, to disarmament law, at least in the slightly narrower definition, that is one that prohibits the Uh, acquisition, the production, and especially requires the destruction of stockpiles of a particular weapon. Now that we've spoken about um, the sources, history, and the definition of international disarmament law, I would like to move on to to your book that was published um, last year, A Guide to International Disarmament Law, that you co-authored with my colleague Tobias Wessner. And the term you coined in this book was um, global disarmament treaty. So how would you define a global disarmament treaty? And what is the first global disarmament treaty? So a global disarmament treaty is simply one to which any state can become a party. They tend to be adopted uh, uh, either within the United Nations or at a specific conference, But uh, often the United Nations Secretary General is the depository of the treaty. That means he or she is responsible for deciding whether or not uh, a state that adheres is actually a state in international law. And today there are 197 states, according to his definition. The first uh, global disarmament treaty is probably best described as the Biological Weapons Convention adopted uh, in 1971, it set out a range of obligations and specifically prohibitions on the acquisition, production of biological weapons and requiring uh, their destruction. A particular uh, feature though of the Biological Weapons Convention is that unlike the, the treaties that follow it, it didn't prohibit use. And that was because there was a, a League of Nations treaty from 1925 that had already prohibited the use of Uh, biological weapons in international armed conflict. So we can say that um, the era of global disarmament treaties started basically 50 years ago. And so next year uh, we will celebrate uh, 50 years of um, the Biological Weapons Convention. And then, so this was in 1971. And then um, when was the next global disarmament treaty adopted? So the, the next uh, major uh, treaty of uh, global disarmament law is the Chemical Weapons Convention, uh, adopted in uh, 1992. It is the most widely ratified of all the global disarmament treaties. 193 of 197 states are party uh, to it. And this model, if we could put it that way, has been largely what has been followed uh, subsequently. So five years later, the Anti-Personnel Mine Ban Convention was adopted, and it took, at least in its Article 1, uh, the basis of uh, the corresponding obligations under the Chemical Weapons Convention, a prohibition on all use and uh, a prohibition on development, production, stockpiling and uh, transfer. What slightly differs, uh, as we'll talk about more in, in a minute, is uh, that any use at any time is prohibited in the Anti-Personnel Mine Ban Convention and in the Convention on Cluster Munitions that followed in 2008, whereas under the Chemical Weapons Convention, certain uses uh, for law enforcement purposes are still lawful. 
The most recent of the global disarmament treaties is the 2017 Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. That's a treaty that's not yet in force, but with 47 of 50 states ratifying, it's only a matter before it also becomes uh, binding international law. That's all we have now for this episode. Thank you to Dominica de Beaufort and Dr. Stuart Casey Maslin. Tune into our next episode and hear all of the latest insights on international peace and security. Or head to our website and discover our upcoming events, webinars, and courses that you can get involved in. Or just stay tuned and let the next episode start automatically in this playlist. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple iTunes, follow us on Spotify and SoundCloud, and across all of our social media channels, which you can find in the episode description. I'm Ashley Mueller with the Geneva Center for Security Policy, and until next time, bye for now.